Thank you guys for being here this morning, all you fathers for being here. It's an honor to get to speak with you this morning. It's an honor to get to continue this series on better Bible study. And it's interesting, I mean, you can buy books that teach you how to study the Bible, and we're going to walk through some of those processes later on, but I wanted to start this series out with the idea of what are good basic biblical themes, themes that help us understand the Bible by putting the entirety into some measure of context. It's a hermeneutical approach to studying scripture. Now, hermeneutical is uh, uh, something that, that I'll talk about in a minute, but last week I gave an assignment. I said, your assignment is think about, look at, research the biblical themes of the remnant Look at the biblical themes of spiritual warfare. Look and see if there's a meta-narrative or a constant storyline that is a love story within the Bible. And I'm delighted to tell you that uh, my dear friend Dale Hearn sent me an email with his homework this week. Dale said, your homework has been hard so far. I had to blow the dust off my Strong's Concordance. I found the word remnant in 25 books of the Bible, a hair over 90 verses. That counts as a theme for sure. Well, good. (laughs) I appreciate that. So aside from counting the verses... What do we do with this? Well, I told you last week that the whole is something beside the parts. Uh, uh, You can take a coffee bean or a set of coffee beans, but when you grind them up and make the whole, you get some wonderful flavored coffee. Now, what is the Bible? It's a library with 66 books. You've got 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 14 are in the Apocrypha, and if you take those books and you work through them all, instead of just looking at them individually, you can see something beside the parts of this big storyline. And that's the idea behind a hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is a reference to how you want to study the Bible in principles of interpretation. In other words, Are there some driving principles that help you understand the bits and pieces? And these principles come from the whole. Meta-narrative is another word that's used for some themes that are carried throughout the Bible. But the idea is that if you understand these big themes, then it's going to help infuse certain individual parts with greater meaning than they might have otherwise. And so when we get to the hermeneutic, we can say you can make better sense of parts of the Bible by understanding the major themes and storylines of the whole Bible. And that's what I've urged us to do as we looked at the major themes of the Bible. So this week we were going to look at three. Hence, the homework. Hence, Dale's email which will also serve as a background for our discussion today. Thank you, Dale. So we will first look at the surviving and thriving remnant, the theme of a remnant. 
and how that might influence our reading and understanding of certain verses when we see that it's a, a narrative theme carried throughout the Bible. The second theme that we'll look at today is spiritual warfare. This ongoing narrative in the Bible that portrays life historically, today, and in the future as one of war between the good and the evil forces that exist. And then the third uh, uh, theme or narrative or or storyline is this love story between God and his creation. The pinnacle of his creation being people. So we'll look at those uh, uh, as, as we continue to unfold this area of Bible study. Let's start with the surviving and thriving remnant. Now, if you were to pull a dictionary out and look up the word remnant, you'd see that it's a noun. It means a small piece or amount of something that is left from a larger original piece or amount. For example... The remnants of last night's meal, maybe you've used that expression before. Some people just call that leftovers. Becky has asked me before, would you like these leftovers for lunch? And I have been heard to reply, I'm not sure that I'm in the mood for the remnants of last night's meal. I've also been heard to reply, Those are remains. They weren't good enough to be eaten last night. She did not make this was door dashed. If she had made it, it would have all been consumed. Better watch it or my father's day is going to take a nasty turn. I will be a remnant of my former self. The idea is that if you've got this whole thing, out of the whole thing as the whole thing kind of ripples away, you've got a remnant. And the biblical theme is that God continually salvages the remnant. God can build a car out of spare parts. God can accomplish God's goals and tasks and will out of just the remains, the remnants, the cast-offs. And that's a biblical theme. And it should infuse our reading of certain biblical texts with a greater depth of understanding as we understand the way that biblical theme should apply in our lives today. Paul understood that biblical theme and narrative. And he went back to it as he tried to teach those churches listening to his direct words as opposed to us who listen to them generations later. Those first generation listeners of Paul would benefit by Paul's understanding of this remnant theme in Scripture. So if we go back to the very beginning of Scripture and we open it up, in Genesis chapter 4, Adam knew Eve, his wife. And Eve conceived and bore Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. 
And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, we know this biblical story. We know as the story unfolds that Cain kills Abel and Cain is vanquished. Now, God has already prophesied that from the offspring of Eve is going to come the one who will conquer Satan. And yet, you've got two offspring. And one kills the other. And the one who kills, the murderer, is vanquished. So where is the will of God? Is it over? Does it end there? Is that the end of the story? Of course not. We know verse 25 says, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. And so the word remnant's not used here, but the concept of God taking the situation and getting something and making something out of it with something that remains is there. If you've got the whole picture and the whole family of Adam and Eve, you'll see that God is able to create a remnant in Seth. Now keep reading through the Bible. Get to Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of people was great in the earth. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven because I'm sorry that I've made them. By the way, the word man there is also like man has historically meant in English. It's, it, it is reflective of men and women. So it wasn't like... You women were great, okay? I mean, God was coming after them all. I will blot out humanity whom I created from the face of the land. Humanity and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. I'm sorry I made them. And God sends a flood over all the land. Question, is it over? Is that the end of it? No. God saves the remnant. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so we see out of the whole earth that God is able to save his remnant, Noah and family. Now we keep reading the story. Sodom and Gomorrah. Their wickedness oozing out of every door instead of poor. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I'll go down to see whether they've done all together according to the outcry that's come to me. He's got these, the, the, the men have just visited Abraham, the angels, and they're headed to Sodom and Gomorrah to check it out. And Abraham knows what's coming because God is going to destroy Sodom unless Abraham can find 50 righteous people, or God can, or 30, or 10, 
and he can't. So he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. But God saves Lot and his family because he's the God of the remnant. And so we're able to read, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Look at this. This is, this is very important in remnant talk. When we're talking about remnants, keep this in mind. Because, spoiler alert, you and I are remnants by the time this biblical story is over. So the men, uh, he, get out of the city. But he, Lot, lingered. So the men seized him. The angels seized Lot and his wife and his daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. This is God looking at Sodom and Gomorrah and grabbing his remnant. He grabs his remnant. He seizes them because of his mercy. Well, we keep reading along in Genesis. And we reach a point where um, you have the, the sons of Jacob... And Jacob doesn't uh, have great family harmony there. When the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over the earth. Now, here's that backstory to make sure we're all on the same page. Jacob's got all these kids. His favorite is uh, Joseph, one of the youngest. And what does he do? He showers Joseph with gifts. Joseph has dreams. The dreams and the gifts and the lifestyle and everything become too much for his older brothers, who in sibling jealousy and rivalry throw him into a pit. Pull him out of the pit only to sell him into slavery in Egypt. Joseph has a horrible time in Egypt. He gets sold to Potiphar. He's doing good by Potiphar, but Potiphar's wife wrongly accuses him of molesting her. And so he gets sent to jail, ultimately rescued out of jail by the Pharaoh. And tell, by interpreting the Pharaoh's dream, rises to a position of high authority. The dreams of Pharaoh were two dreams that both indicated seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. With the idea that you store up the plenty in the years of plenty to last during the years of want. Now, that is the backstory, And so that's happened. And the famines now spread all over the land. People are truly starving to death. Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And then beyond Egypt, others start coming because they're desperate for food. All the earth. Now, when it says all the earth, realize that the, don't, don't think that the Bible's making a mistake there. Um, because... You know, there's no evidence that uh, the Native Americans left and went over to get, okay. Now, all the earth, 
the Hebrew for all just means everything in the consideration here. The Hebrew word earth is just the word land. So it's not talking about planet earth here. It's not talking about every single person. If we're reading this fairly in the Hebrew, it's talking about um, uh, the people of the land, the folks around there, and all in the sense of a bunch of them, okay? Same principle, by the way, is true with the Greek word. So when it says all Jerusalem came out to be baptized by John the Baptist, it did not include like the high priests and Pilate and people like that. It just means a bunch, you know, and because and, um, that's... Our English is the same way, too. We can use all that way. You know, all the people were there. Okay. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. Well, his brothers have to come. And once his brothers come and it becomes apparent who Joseph is, which doesn't happen the first time they come, but once they come and it's apparent that this is the Joseph they sold into slavery... They're scared to death about what Joseph's going to do to them. Retribution. And look at the words that are used in this reference in Genesis 45. Joseph says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Here the word remnant's actually used. God sent me to provide for a remnant. See, there's famine in the land, but God had planned ahead for his remnant. By putting grain in Egypt. All right. We keep reading the stories. And we get to 1 Kings. I'm skipping over a lot. Because we've got a lot to cover. In 1 Kings 19.10. This is Elijah speaking. And Elijah has had a tough time with King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. He's defeated the prophets of Baal. But the king's got a death sentence on Elijah. So Elijah goes off running. And he finds a cave. And he has a great pity party of one. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Poor, pitiful Elijah. Only Elijah is left for God in Israel. And how does God reply? 1 Kings chapter 19. Yet I reserve a remnant of 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal... And whose mouths have not kissed him. I've got a remnant that I reserved. Now a lot of translations will not put the word remnant in there. Because it's built into the word verb I reserved. 
But it is the same word as remnant in the verb form. I've reserved. I've remnanted 7,000 in Israel. I have a remnant of 7,000. So there are faithless people in the land. But God says, I've preserved my remnant. So as we continue to look through this and we get to, hold on, I'm having, there we go. 2 Kings 18. Now we've got a different story. Israel's had their civil war. The northern kingdom called Israel or called Samaria sometimes after the capital. It's been conquered. The southern kingdom called Judah. It's been conquered. Except for Jerusalem. And the Assyrian king has surrounded Jerusalem. And he's telling Hezekiah, and, and, and he goes out, he has Rabshakar, I think was his name, uh, go out who could speak the language. And he's speaking in the Hebrew language to everybody from outside and says, hey, if you will give up, I'll treat you nice. You can still have donuts and coffee in the morning. You can have tuna and Diet Coke for lunch. I will treat you very well unless you persist in following this obtuse king, Hezekiah. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hanah and Ivah? Have they delivered Samaria, the northern kingdom, out of my hand? Nobody's going to deliver you out of my hand. Sennacherib is going to destroy Judah. But look at 2 Kings 19, 20 through 28. 2 Kings 19, verses 20 through 28. This is Isaiah the prophet who has come in to talk to Hezekiah. And I love what he has to say. Then Isaiah, the son of Amaz, sent to Hezekiah, saying... Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I've heard. And so here's what I've got to say. Concerning the king of Assyria. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, Rabshakeh that we just read, you've mocked the Lord. You've said, with my many chariots, I've gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon, fell its tallest trees, its choicest cypress. 
I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I drug wells. I drank foreign waters. I dried up with the sole of my foot the streams of Egypt. You can brag all you want. But haven't you heard that I, Yahweh, determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now I bring to pass. That you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. While their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field, like tender grass on the housetops. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you've raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears. I'm going to put my hook in your nose. I'm going to put my bit in your mouth. And I'm going to turn you back on the way by which you came. That's what God's going to do. And then we continue to read. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. God is going to save his remnant. And God treasures his remnant out of all of Assyria's adversaries. Now, Hezekiah dies, God does it, Hezekiah dies and all. Ultimately, Manasseh takes the throne. Manasseh is a terrible king. He's doing lots of evil. And so we read in 2 Kings 21... If only they'll be careful to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law my servant Moses commanded them, life would be good. But they didn't listen. And King Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So there's this massive uh, evil that's afoot, and King Manasseh is the leader behind it. And so God says, I'm going to bring your kingdom to an end. Judah will be destroyed. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of the enemy. And they'll become a prey and spoil to all their enemies. God says he's going to do with the remnant. So out of earth's people, God is going to discipline his remnant. And we get that here. If only they were careful to do all I commanded them, but they didn't listen. So God wipes them as the dish and the remnant passes. Now, that's not the end of the story. Isaiah had already prophesied that a remnant after the captivity will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. It says, for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. And this remnant is going to be there. Ezra testifies to it when they come back after the um, time spent uh, uh, in Babylon. 
after all that's come upon us for our evil deeds and for our guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and has given us such a remnant as this, because the remnant returns. This is out of earth's people. God disciplines his treasured remnant, but he does not forsake his treasured remnant. He brings them righteousness. Look at the way Micah writes. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. He's talking about the day of Jesus. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those that I have afflicted. And the lame, I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Micah says there's a day coming where God's going to take the weak. Those who can't survive on their own. Those who are beggars. And he's going to make them the remnant. Look at the way Isaiah said it. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. So God will be the glory as he calls his remnant in righteousness. Okay, I'm having a lot of trouble with this right now. I can't find my cursor to bring it. Uh, there it is. Okay, hold on. We've, I, I want to go back and show something that I may have missed. Um, that one... Yes, yes. A remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be a sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. That's the verse that I had failed to to illustrate properly. Righteousness. God's going to call the lame. He's going to call his remnant forth. But he's calling them forth in righteousness. And that's the way that God will bring them to glory. So in that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory, a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Out of all of earth's people, God's going to choose the outcast as his remnant. And he's going to bring to the outcast his glory. Now, why does this help transform our understanding of life? Jesus comes, Jesus dies, Jesus is resurrected, and the church is born. And the church is a Jewish institution for the first several years. Finally, Cornelius, a Gentile, comes in. We've got an Ethiopian eunuch coming in. But it's not until the missionary efforts of Paul and his teams that the church really starts seeing a large influx of Gentiles, the Goyim, the, the, the non-Jewish, into the church. And at first, this is a huge academic struggle for the church because the church leaders, the apostles and the elders, are saying, well, but God's called us as the remnant of Judaism, so don't they need to become Jews to be part of the remnant? 
And they have this big conference about it in Acts chapter 15 where they all get together. And they pray about it and they study the scriptures and they argue over what they mean. And then we've got this passage in Acts chapter 15 where they quote from the Old Testament and say, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that's fallen. The tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins and I'll restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. The remnant is of mankind, not just of Judah. And so God's remnant of which the Old Testament speaks over and over and over of people that he disciplines, people that he treasures, people that he plans for, people that he nurtures, people that he calls into being, people that he protects, people whose prayers they answer. That's not just for the Jews. That's for the remnant of all mankind. That's everybody who comes into his tent. God grows his remnant out of all of earth's peoples. See what we just did? We did that reversal thing. In other words, he doesn't just grow his remnant from the Jews. Now we're growing to all the earth. It's the reversal in a sense of the remnant theme. And then the question becomes, well then what of the Jews? Is this a rejection of them? Absolutely not. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, God hasn't rejected his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left. They seek my life. But what is God's reply? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. So at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul knows the remnant is there, but the remnant is chosen by grace. It's a massive underlying theme to the Bible. I put it in here because it's not one that a lot of times we just spend a lot of time talking about. But it's one that Paul knew and used to explain the work of God in us. And it is an Old Testament theme that's just page after page after page after page. So with that, let's move to a second theme, spiritual warfare. Now Dale in his email to me. He did say he'd found remnant in 25 books of the Bible, a hair over 90 verses. That counts as a theme for sure. This was hard. He had to blow the dust off his strong concordance. And then on assignment number two, Spiritual warfare. Mr. Hearn tells us the following. On spiritual warfare, I don't have to do much research at all. I read all the Peretti books. I got that. This present darkness, etc. Yeah, Frank Peretti had a great series that sold millions and millions of copies. This present darkness. C.S. Lewis beforehand, the screw tape letters. You can read those and understand spiritual warfare is going on. But they didn't invent it. It's in the scriptures. It starts real early in Genesis. In Genesis, God creates and everything is good. 
But the serpent enters the picture. And the serpent twists God's words. The serpent seduces Eve away from God's will. And then Eve, of course, gives it to the husband who isn't any better than she is. And they're vanquished, and God announces the curse on the earth. The curses of sin. The curse upon humanity, the curse upon the earth, the curse upon the serpent. But there's clearly a battle going on. And that battle starts in the very first pages of Genesis and it goes to replete throughout the Old Testament. You can read the book of Job and you can get a real flavor for some of this in a somewhat unique and unusual way. One that's worthy of more time than we're going to give it right now. But verse 6 of chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan said, I've been going up and down the earth, walking up and down. God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one quite like him. Blameless and upright, fears God, turns away from evil. Satan says, well, yeah, but... Not because he's a good guy. It's because you put a hedge of protection around him and his house and everything he has. You've blessed the works of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But you stretch out your hand and you touch what he has and he'll curse you to your face. And so Satan, over the coming verses, as the subtitles show, takes Job's property. He takes Job's children. He takes Job's health. And there is the battle that's being waged in the life of Job. There's spiritual warfare. Now, some interesting questions arise out of that. And I, I, if, if I had more than 14 minutes left, we might talk about some of them. But you read through the Bible. Heavens, you get to the book of Revelation. And you're going to see in, in Revelation 12, verse 7. Look at this. Revelation 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for him in heaven. And the great dragon who was thrown down, the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come and the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God, much like the story we were reading in Job. Now, this is, by my understanding of Revelation, a reference back to the cross of Christ. God defeated Satan on Calvary with a resurrection of Easter Sunday morning. 
Death has lost its sting. Death does not reign. Sin does not reign. Hallelujah. And some people say, I've had it said to me, then why, if Satan's lost, does he work so hard to ruin my life? And the answer, I believe, is pretty simple. Misery loves company. He's going to take down as much as he can with him. He does not delight in the joy of the Lord. He tried to stop it. He tried to stop it with uh, the temptations of Jesus. Hey, if you want the kingdoms, Jesus, you bow to me, I'll give you the kingdoms. Hey, Jesus, you just follow my lead and I'll take care of you. I'll give you free reign. But let's do it my way, not God's way. And he doesn't win the confrontations with Jesus. But when Judas betrays Jesus, who entered his heart? Satan. By the way, Satan is not all-knowing. He's not just the negative of God the positive. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He has limitations. Satan had no idea what God had figured out on Calvary. If Satan had had any remote idea, Judas never would have betrayed Jesus. What The work that Jesus finished on Calvary was the winning of the war for humanity. You can't read the book of Jude. Most people don't read the book of Jude anyway. But you can't read the book of Jude without being stunned over some of its talk about spiritual warfare. Look at this. Um, Go to verse 5. We'll pick up there. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, isn't that interesting? Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Jesus is Yahweh. Afterward, destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh reject authority blaspheme the glorious ones now look at this But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And it goes on to talk about all of the people in in the, the, the spiritual warfare that's given in the Old Testament. Now, Jude is not quoting, if you read your Old Testament, you're not going to read that Mike Angel disputing with the devil over the body of Moses. That's read in a non-biblical book called The Assumption of Moses. It's one that Jude's readers would have read. It would be like somebody today referencing Aslan in C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia in a sermon. And a lot of people who'd read the Chronicles of Narnia would understand the reference to Aslan in that book. So this is not uh, anything weird. 
But as we read a passage like that, with that type of an understanding, and we're going to go to genres of literature in the Bible later, but if you read that with that type of understanding, you see that the point is, the writer says, there's a spiritual battle going on. Paul says much the same thing. Look at what Paul says. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is part of the warfare that's going on. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Peter will say he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. It's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul's able to write to the Ephesians and say, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There is a spiritual war going on. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And that's where Frank Peretti got his title, This Present Darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He continues, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you'll be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand, therefore. He Stand, therefore, if you watch, read Watchman Nee's book, Sit, Walk, Stand, a commentary of sorts on Ephesians, an exposition is a better way to say it, on Ephesians. He walks through the, the way Paul uses the analogy or the words of sit and then walk and finally get to a point where you stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. This is warfare. This is war armament. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I get so many emails from you guys saying, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. Thank you for those prayers. I survive off the prayers of the saints. Spiritual warfare is a mega intense part of the Bible. It's a way to read and discern. And once you start reading and discerning that constant theme in hermeneutic, So many storylines and passages start taking greater shape and greater sense in your mind as you begin to identify the struggle between good and evil. All right, the third thing is a love story of God and his creation. I don't know what you're saying. You're saying, well, Mark, you've left yourself four minutes. How can you do the whole Bible in four minutes? Well, Dale Hearn to the rescue. As Dale continued on spiritual warfare, I don't have to do much research. I read the Peretti book, so I've got that, this present darkness. On the third one, you said all of this too fast, and I wrote in my phone, live story. 
I have no idea what that means. I know I'll get penalized for my grade for that. I'm only going to remind you of the grace you asked for to extend for me. So Dale didn't even get that he was supposed to get ready for it. Love story, not live story. So we're just going to do the points for home, and I'm going to add that to his homework. He doesn't get out of it. So here's your homework this week. Dale, you can also use your phone and just take a picture of the screen when it's done so you don't have to type it in. What of the biblical themes we're going to do of the temple? There's a great narrative throughout Scripture of the temple. And that may take like a whole week. This whole series could just turn into biblical hermeneutics, but sorry. Of the temple, what of the biblical theme of sacrifice? And for the students who didn't get it done last time, of a love story. And then we may have, we won't have time, but at some point we're going to have time maybe of getting to the biblical theme of giving. We have a giving God. It is his nature. He gives Adam and Eve a garden. He gives them the, the fruit. He gives them. I mean, it's just God is giving, 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 giving from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Here are your points for home for today. Remember, God can build a car out of spare parts. And that applies in a macro sense for the world, but it applies in a micro sense to you and to me. God can take a shred of what's left in our life and let that remnant grow into something that's beautiful. So I urge you to realize what Paul wrote to the Colossians. You, who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In the death of Christ, we are remnant people. We are remnant people that God loves, planned for, protects, rescues, will grab by the arm if he needs to and drag out of certain situations. But if not, will discipline when the need arises, though less harshly than is deserved. Because he wants us as a remnant to learn and grow in the holiness with which he has anointed us in Jesus. Point for home two. Be alert to the fight around you. There is a fight going on around you. Paul wasn't writing, you know, Ephesians wasn't written to a fella or a lady. It wasn't even written to the church at Ephesus. It's what was called a cyclical letter. Or cyclical. It was to be circulated. Around to the various churches. And he said in all circumstances take up the shield of faith. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That means the shield of faith. i tell you what that means to me. I kind of categorize it into two subjects. First of all, that area of me that just feels totally inadequate before God. By grace I've been saved through faith. Paul already wrote that in this letter. Not by works. I can't boast for anything I've done. 
It is by the grace of God. And my trust in, 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 in that let affirms to me that God holds me as his remnant. I am in his care. And that's one sense where my faith will stop those fiery darts that say you're not good enough. Of course I'm not good enough. If I was, he didn't have to die. But there's a second way that this means something to me. Life cascades into us problems. My heart right now is just burdened for what happened with Bruce Young and to his, for his family. Not for Bruce. Bruce is with the Lord in paradise. But what happened for his family that's behind here is just a gut kick for me. I can't imagine his family. And yet, my shield of faith tells me that God does not abandon his people. That God is the balm of Gilead. That God is the comforter of our soul. That God walks with us through the dark valley, even the shadow of death. And behind that shield of faith, whatever is coming at me and for you, whatever is coming at you, that shield of faith says, God is at work in protecting me. And I just need to embrace him and his will and walk. Because I can stand where I am and withstand those fiery darts by the grace of God. Which is the final one. Be alert to the fight around you and pray. Praying at all times in the spirit. Praying with supplication. Pray, Lord, be with the young family right now as they process grief and, and are stunned. Lord, be with anybody who's hearing this message who is scared to death about what's down the road. Be that shield of faith to them. Lord, take the people whose life right now is really good where the sun is out and the wind's behind them and fortify them with strength for the days of storms that will come. Lord, meet the needs of the lame, physically or spiritually. Bring us as your remnant together in your kingdom, Lord. For that is where we desire to be for all eternity. In worship and love, we pray in the name of Jesus, the almighty conqueror of all things evil. Amen.